Every episode. Back in the late 80s, I have a friend who's a um, facial plastic surgeon, and I was losing my hair. And he said, look, he said, why don't you be a model for me? And uh, I'll, you know, do the transplant and all that. So I went and he took pictures of my head and everything. And I said, okay, Felix, now how, what, what are we going to do? And he said, well, I'm going to cut around here and I'm going to pull your scalp away from your skull and I'm going to stretch it up there and then sew it. I said, Felix, I'm going to look like with my ears up here. <laughs> and obviously I didn't do it. <laughs> The lust for the wow. lust for hair, the lust for your ears being in the right place was was less than your lust for hair. <laughs> but he said, "Oh no no no, that your ears are gonna be alright. Your ears will still be there. It's too great of a risk." <laughs> but all those things that we do, all the pressure that women feel to look a certain way, to uh, plastic surgery, and all those things, it's actually a lust for life. Yep. Right? And the lust, that's it's in the world. It's not that the lust is inside of you first and then it's in the world. It's that that lust found a way into the world through death. And then what happens is, is you feel the pressing in of that lusting for life. Right? And what happens is, is man, sometimes we, can su- we succumb to the great weight of our desire for life. And the reason we succumb is because many times when we feel that desire for life, it's not evil to desire life. You guys realize that? God also desires life. So it isn't evil to desire life. But when you're hit with that desire and you feel that weight of wanting life, what do you mix it with? Right? Do you mix it with the faith that came in Jesus Christ? Which is that God done a work to overcome death in the flesh and give you the life you always long for. In fact, the only life that can satisfy your flesh is for your flesh to hear that it has a life that will eradicate death from it. And that it will clothe upon this mortal flesh with an undying flesh that can never feel weakness again. That's actually the only thing that can satisfy your flesh. Because that's the life your flesh wants. That's why the flesh can never be satisfied, right? Our minds can tell us, well, if I can get this, then I'll be satisfied. Next thing you know, you got it and you still ain't satisfied. Why? Have you ever asked yourself, why? Why couldn't that satisfy me? Because we've never really understood what it is this wants. You want to know what this wants? Behold the resurrected Jesus that came out of the grave and glorified immortal flesh that could never die or taste weakness again. That's what Paul said, that Jesus was raised from the dead in a body that was made by the hand of God that could never die again, never taste weakness again, never feel lack again, never feel any of that. That's what this wants. And so you might want a house and your heart may go past the desire for a house and it may turn into a lusting after a house. I promise you, when you get that house, that house ain't gonna satisfy your desire. It's not, it's not. You may desire a number of different things and nothing is wrong with desire, but don't let your desire turn into a lust where you think your ability to be satisfied is on the other end of you getting what you say you desire, because it isn't and you'll never be satisfied. And if you keep walking that way, what will happen is it will end in great frustration and angst, right? And you'll start finding things to blame for your dissatisfaction, right? You'll find the people in your life around you, and you'll start blaming them for the dissatisfaction you feel. You'll start blaming your kids, your spouse, your pastor. I had to throw that in, right? I mean, I got I to protect myself from the ire. No, I'm joking. You'll find yourself looking without to blame for what you feel within. But if what you feel is within, then it can't be on an account of what's without. Do you see? If you're not feeling it without, and you're feeling it within, then it's got to be on account of something that's within and not something that's without. Right? So don't let your mind get set on what you see around you as if that's the problem with what you feel within. It's not. The problem with what you feel within is that corruption entered the earth and you got a body that's perishing and can feel weakness and you're longing for a life that can't feel weakness. You're longing for a life where you never feel weak, you never feel stressed, you never feel anxiety. That's what you're longing for. And the world comes and says, listen, that anxiety you feel, that stress you feel, that pressure you feel, it's because of this externally. Use your ability. 
right? Gather unto yourself these things, and that will satisfy your heart. It will never satisfy your heart, right? It'll never satisfy your desire. The only thing that will is the word of a life that's overcome death in the flesh, right? That's the only thing that will. And so that's why Paul said, we desire, we groan within desiring to be clothed upon with our house that's in heaven. He's talking about the body, right? Paul talked about the thing that tormented him was the body of sin or the body that Adam built when Adam enlisted his own strength to try to have life. He called it the body of death. Who shall save me from this body of death? Who shall save me from this dying body? I see the life of God. I agree that it's good. And so I try to get it. And the more I try to get it, the more I can't get it. And the more I can't get it, it's not only that I don't get it, but I'm actually bringing forth the fruit of death that I don't want. And it's tormenting me. Who shall save me from this? Right? And then he goes on to say that God showed up and saved him. And the way God saved him was God condemned death in the flesh. That's the thing that was tormenting Paul, this body of death. He said, wait a second, I see God showed up in Jesus, and what he actually did in Jesus was Jesus is the incorruptible word, as Athanasius said, and he says that Jesus was given a body by God to take death into it. And so what I see in Jesus is that God showed up, put on a body that was perishable, and then took the death that torments me into that body. And because what was inside of that body was an incorruptible life, death couldn't keep that body down. Death couldn't hold it. And so when Jesus come out of the grave, what he did was he condemned death in the flesh, meaning he conquered it. And now Paul sees a hallelujah, right? God is with me to satisfy the desire I have for life. And he overcome the death that I see in my flesh that bothers me. And I see that he built a body for me that can never die or taste weakness again. Hallelujah. The life I live now in the flesh, I'm living in the earth all the time, beholding my desire for life satisfied in the body of the man, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Right? And that's what he did. You think Paul never found himself stressed out wanting life? How do you think you feel when you're floating in the ocean? And you ain't eating for a few weeks. I mean, listen, I know that they didn't have TV, and so maybe Paul hadn't seen Jaws before. <laughs> so maybe he wasn't quite as stressed out as we might be floating in the ocean for a couple weeks. But listen, man, you floating in the ocean for a couple weeks, having been shipwrecked, I promise you, the thought comes to you that you don't have the life you need. Right? Paul went through many horrible things. He was stoned and left for dead. He, he, was, he, he went weeks without eating. He was shipwrecked. He was stranded on an island. A poisonous snake bit his arm. All horrible things happened to Paul. And he desired life in the midst of all those things. He said that sometimes he was so stressed out about his life that his sorrow was even unto death. Right? Let me die. That's how strong the desire was. But what he says is, because I saw that God conquered death in the flesh, every time I saw death in my life, every time I saw weakness in my body and weakness around me, and every time I felt the longing for life, what I did was I fellowshiped with God around the work that he did to conquer the death that's bothering me and to build me a body that can never die or taste weakness again through his incorruptible word. And now I fellowship with that in the midst of the lack I feel. And that satisfies me. And it puts my flesh back to rest. I see that I'm not a lamb that's been left in the world to be led away for a slaughter. But I see that the Father is the shepherd and bishop of my soul. And I see what he's done in the body he's made me. And my heart immediately is persuaded that I lack nothing. And what happens is, is he's made me to lay down in the tender green grass. I see the grace in his arm to conquer death in the flesh and to give me eternal life. And that has stilled the quiet of this storm. I see that God is with me and prepared a table of life in the midst of all the death that has surrounded me. And I'm feeding on the meat or the flesh of Jesus, the bread of life, the flesh of a life that can't die. I'm feeding on that every day. And yea, though I walk through a valley shadowed by death, my heart is kept from evil, O Lord. My heart is kept from lust. That's what he's talking about. My heart is kept from lusting after life. My heart is kept from the anxiety, being able to be born in my heart. There's a difference between feeling anxiety and feeling lack and it being born inside of your heart, right? And one of the reasons why it gets it right to be born in our heart is when we feel anxiety and lack, we tend to see that as a sign that something's wrong. <laughs> the moment we feel like a negative emotion, we think it's a sign that something's off. What's wrong with me? Where is it going wrong? Is God here? 
We start looking. We, we judge our negative emotions or the lack or anxiety to, we feel to be a sign that somehow God's not there. That somehow we're separated from what we need for life. And that's how lust gets it right to be born in us. Because that lack becomes the judgment we live by. Right? We look at the lack we feel, and then we use that lack as the place we reason from about whether we have what is needed for life or whether God is with us. And since we feel lack, we say, God can't be with us. <laughs> right? That's, that's how the thing works. That's how it works. But did Jesus come? Jesus is like, we got to minister to these people. And so Jesus enters in the earth. He takes all death upon himself. We look at Jesus and we conclude God isn't there with him. Right? Because how could he end up with death all around him if God's there? Right? It says, it says Jesus, we, we esteem Jesus smitten and stricken by God. We saw Jesus on the cross and we thought it was the result of God abandoning him. Right? But Jesus is God. How much closer can you be to God? <laughs> you know why lust wasn't conceived in Jesus' heart? Because he didn't see the death of the cross as a sign that he wasn't one with God. He didn't see the death of the cross as a sign that he was coming behind in what was needed to have life. He judged the death of the cross as being insignificant in comparison to the life he shares with the Father. Right? And what that did was it kept lust from being born in his heart. And he fellowshiped with the life that he shared with the Father from the beginning. Right? And it kept his heart from fear and anxiety. You know, the, the, uh, I think it was Athanasius that said this, that this understanding of having an incorruptible body was so strong in the first century that children and adults would both run toward death instead of trying to escape it. That's right. And that's powerful, and that's the power of the gospel. Yeah. And that's why we preach what we preach here. You guys wonder why I'm always speaking against death? You wonder why I'm always talking about a life that, that's incorruptible? Because that's what solves all the problems. That's the root. Jesus said he came to take an axe to the root, right? Christianity's been so busy with the fruit and, and things that we've lost sight of what the gospel is actually about and where the power is contained. I mean, why is it that God isn't filled with lust? What we've, what we've said is that he's this super great, and we suck super. <laughs> That's what we say. Well, God's super great, and we, we're, we're super bad. We <laughs> we're super bad. And we've never stopped to actually... He's Father. We never stopped to actually ask him, why aren't you filled with lack? What is it about you? Right? That's the foundation of where you start finding who God is and what the life he has in himself born in you. Because I promise you, you start asking God questions like that, he's going to start teaching you about the life he has in himself. And then he's going to start teaching you about how you're his child. And your inheritance is his life. And then he'll start talking with you about what he's done to braid you together with his life. And he'll start teaching you the life you have isn't the life you see around you in the world. It's not held in the things you see in the world, but it's held in him. Right? And that's when you start finding yourself set free. That's one of the reasons why I... I bemoan the horrible doctrines in the church. Like today, I'm going to trash the sin nature idea. Right? Because that's got nothing to do with the gospel. It's got nothing to do with the problem for man. It's got nothing to do with it. And what it is, is it's shadow boxing. You ever had an ailment in your body and you couldn't really figure out what it was? You ever had a doctor misdiagnose what your ailment was and then prescribe you a bunch of medication and stuff that never fixed the problem? Right? You know why the medication couldn't fix the problem? Because it was a wrong diagnosis. It's a misdiagnosis. What the church has done is we can observe something's wrong or that something ails us, but then we've misdiagnosed the problem. And because we misdiagnosed the problem, we leave people enlisting a prescription that can't actually heal the ailment. Right? And then they're left shadow boxing all the time, fighting th mythical things, mythical things that don't exist, like a sin nature. Right? You don't see the Apostle Paul talking about his sin nature. You just don't. You don't see him talking about that's a problem. And then what happens is, so we, we create, humans create this doctrine about sin nature. By the way, Athanasius don't ever say nothing about his sin nature. He talks about death and an incorruptible life. We create this doctrine about a sin nature to try to explain the bad behavior we see. But we created doctrines based on the fruit instead of the root. And so we try to explain the bad behavior without understanding the root. And then we create these doctrines because man has a sin nature. Right? 
And the reason why I say it's mythical, and I'll get into this in the message, it's mythical because no one can ever tell you what it really is. No one can really tell you how it works. Right? It just is. It just is, and you can't get free from it. The best I ever got out of what is a sin nature, it's just that you suck, Greg. And you're just abundantly evil and wicked. You're inherently sinful and evil, right? And you're just condemned to being a worm in the sight of God forever. Well, how does that, how can I be free from it? Oh, no, no, you can't. You can't be free from it. And then some people come along and we're like, wait a second, that's not right. We can be free from it. And so they agreed, we all have a sin nature. And that's the problem. But then they come and said, but believers, people who believe on Jesus, they no longer have a sin nature. Oh, hallelujah, yeah. Our spirit's been made perfect now, right? Well, that came after the spirit part. Well, then something happened. People were still doing the same things they did before they believed on Jesus. What? Well, how could that be if they no longer have a sin nature anymore? What? And so then they create more doctrines. Another backslide. To try to explain, to try to explain the first doctrine that was wrong to begin with. And that's when they create spirit, soul, and body. To try to explain how it is a believer who no longer has a sin nature is still doing the same things they were doing when they did have a sin nature. And that's when they come with spirit, soul, and body. And they say, your spirit has been perfected. But the rest of you, it's garbage still. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> right? You're stuck in that body. And so now, now here we are. Well, there was some relief with that because at least one third of us have been perfected. Oh, hallelujah. I remember there was some relief with that. Because you see yourself still doing these things and you were taught those things are a sign that you're evil. Well, now you still see them and you can't get rid of them. And so you're thinking you're evil. So I remember with the spirit, soul, and body, there was some relief because they like, oh, no, no, I've been perfected in here. Hallelujah. Right? And then I remember one day after I worked that spirit, soul, and body teacher for so long, and that never set me free, I was looking myself in the mirror, and I was like, but wait a second, I see a body. (laughs) I don't see a spirit. I see that I have a human body and flesh, so it does nothing for me to believe my spirit man has been perfected. (laughs) Nothing. Because I'm not a spirit. I'm not a ghost. I'm not going to be Casper the ghost. And so my body's like, listen, bro, you keep talking about how you're a spirit and your spirit's been perfected, but that makes me think that I'm left out in the cold. What about me? Yeah. (laughs) Right? And then you got these guys that write the NIV, which is full of sin nature instead of flesh. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to get into a lot of this in there, but the word carnal in... uh, in Romans 8, what it, what it actually means is, is a perishable human body. That's what the word carnal means. It means a body that is dying. It's a flesh that is dying. It's a, it's a body that's full of death on account of its bones working to produce blood to keep it alive. That's what it's talking about. So a carnal mind is a mind filled with the body of death. A carnal mind is a mind that's filled with the fact that their flesh is dying and they don't have life. That's what the carnal mind is. That place they reason from is the body of death instead of the body of life. And so all the judgments they make about themselves and others and God become the death they see in their body and the death they see all around them. That's why you have atheists say they don't believe in God. You know, after you hear an atheist say they don't believe in God, you know what's soon to follow? All the tribulation and death they see in the world. That's the evidence, right? Well, the reasoning from the death that's in the world instead of the life that manifested in Jesus. And so if you reason, the place you're reasoning from is the death that's in the world, you're blind. You can't comprehend God. You can't see God. You can't see his life. You can't see anything. That's why it says, in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of man, right? It means it popped open man's eyes. It helped man see God with them, overcoming death in the flesh. That's why I hammer the life and the death. Right? Best teaching up. That's, the, that's why we, we talk, what, what you actually need, if we want to make it as, as simple as it could be, what you need is to have eyes to see that God is with you, having overcome death in the flesh. 
and braided, having braided you together with himself and his incorruptible life. That, that's as simple as you need. And that will heal everything going on in your life to fellowship with that. Now you can say a lot of things from that. And you could make a lot of conclusions and dissect things from that simple truth. But that's the simple truth that human beings need to do, needed. What did Jesus need when he was on the cross? He needed to see that the Father was with him, even in him, to overcome the death that had come upon him at the cross. That's what he needed. And that's what he saw. And what did it do? It put him to rest, even in the midst of the death of the cross. The peace and the love and the joy that came from him seeing God is with me, even in me, to overcome the death of this cross. The peace and the love and the joy that came from that made the cross look small. Now that will confound the, the, the human mind, won't it? How can that be? I promise you, the peace of God makes the torment of the cross un petit, as we would say in French. Very little. Right? And so that's the peace that you're longing for, that's the joy you're longing for. That's where it's found. Just in that simple revelation. Right? And anything that's stealing peace and love and joy from you, the reason that it's stealing it from you is because you perceive it to be in the way of you having life. It's a stumbling block to me having life. This thing that I see, it's not right, and it's in the way of me having the peace I long for. Right? But the life of God said, nothing can keep me from peace. Right? The life of God doesn't need the things around it to go right to have peace. The life of God has peace in itself. <laughs> right? Does that make any sense? Absolutely. Only God can produce that. Right? Only God can produce that. And for those of you that like to read, Athanasius, it's not a big book. It's an easy read. You could, yeah, it's a very easy it read. It's Athanasian, Athanasius on the Incarnation. It's an easy, short read, and it's an it's a early church father, a guy who was in direct lineage of teaching from the apostles. I got it right here. You can get it. You can get it pretty cheap on Kindle. And it's only, and you know, these Kindle sheets are not big. Right. It's right. only. 47 pages. Yeah. Can y'all spell that well, for me? It's 80 pages. I'll send it a link. I already got it saved. Well, it might be 80 pages with the introduction. And yeah. I don't, I, I'm not reviewing that. I'm just showing you what I have on mine. Put it in the group. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, they finally translated. But what Christianity, modern Christianity has done is we've adopted people like Augustine, who didn't come to like 400 AD. And we've adopted people like Calvin, John Calvin. Mm. And those kind of people. And we built the church's doctrine on those guys. But those guys weren't the apostles or the prophets. And so we've erred greatly. And we've taught these horrible things that have left people in bondage. Mm. Right? Instead of teaching the real problem. Death is the real problem. And death gave birth to the carnal mind. Right? That's the problem. Right there. I feel like that sort of exists in so many other areas of humanity, though. Because we're always... Fixing ways and in, in a very fixing things in a very surfacey way, mm-hmm. it makes us then feel good because it's so tangible and easy. It's like you're doing bad things. Stop doing that. Oh, I could do that. Mm-hmm. Cool. I'll go work on that. But the real message is not as tangible. You know what I'm saying? You, to, the, to the carnal mind. Right. Right. And you know, <laughs> we live in this world where we can see and smell and hear. And so, if you give somebody within that framework something to do it's easier to consume and then you get this immediate gratification of and then you get this placebo effect which is very effective because you feel better now all of a sudden but you're actually just fixing this surfacey thing that won't last long at all that won't satisfy that leaves you all the time laboring and the reason why you see that everywhere is because the world has been built on a corruptible life and so all of its systems will be infiltrated with a corruptible life in the carnal mind, right? That wisdom that you're describing. The whole world is built on that wisdom. So it's going to be in every system that there is, right? That's why you see it everywhere. That's why it's so prevalent. That's why Paul said we're of the world, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We don't think like the world thinks. The reason we don't think like the world thinks is because faith came in the person of Jesus. And we see that God overcame death in the flesh of Jesus. So now, the place where we begin reasoning from, 
is a life that overcomes death in the flesh. A life that's incorruptible. That's where our thoughts are born from. The world's thoughts are born first from something that's corrupted and what we're going to do to fix it. But the, the Christian life is supposed to begin with an incorruptible life that's come by the hand of God and how that fixes everything, right? And so you begin from the solution. And it, it's, the solution can't be corrupted. Well, the world begins with the problem. And the problem is corrupted. And it is corruption itself. Yeah, right? Humans can't fix corruption. And that's why it's never ending. Right? So you could fix something external and you could feel like an adrenaline rush. It's almost like an addict. Right? Because you're right. We, we begin with the, the carnal mind. We behold things that are wrong. And then we put our arm to work to fix something that's wrong. We might temporarily think we fixed something and we get like a dopamine release right. in our brain. And it feels so nice what we felt when we fixed that, right? That we become addicted to thinking we can fix it or thinking that the peace we desire is on the other side of fixing it. But the world will always tell you one thing you lack. And so it's fleeting. It's like with uh, uh, drugs. I did a lot of drugs. I shot up drugs. And I remember the, the Guns N' Roses song, Mr. Brownstone. I used to do a little, but a little wouldn't do it, so the little got more and more. I just keep trying to get a little better, just a little better than before. I used to do a little, but the little wouldn't do it, and the little got more and more. I just keep trying to get a little better, just a little better than before. Right? And what he, he's describing the dynamic. People that don't, haven't done drugs, they don't know, and you don't want to know. But the first time you shoot up, man, wow, this is what I've been looking no worries, no care, no fear, no stress, no self-consciousness. That's why it's so attractive. And then the next time, wait, wait, I didn't quite get there. Oh, man. Next thing you know, next thing you know, and you never get there. And you're in a cycle. And that's what it is to trust in your own strength. That's what it is to identify with the life in the world. You could get a dopamine rush from fixing something or thinking you got something. Right? I remember when, I mean, my whole life I thought I would be married. And then, you know, I got in a destructive relationship and um, it broke down. And then I was alone. And I was alone for like four years. By choice, I mean, I, I staved off relationships. And then I found Becky. And man, I felt that dopamine. Right? I thought, this is what I'm looking for. And in some degree, it was what I was looking for. But it wasn't the thing that could satisfy me. Right? Becky, I did desire to walk with Becky and share life with Becky. But I remember when I first encountered Becky, I had to realize, no, no, no. She can't make me whole. Because that's a heavy burden to put on somebody that will crush them. Yeah. Right? But it gave me that rush. Sure. Right? And so there is a period of time where you feel like, oh, this is eternal life. And you don't realize what's going on. But I promise you that if you think in your spouse is eternal life, who do you think the problem lies with the first time you don't feel eternal life? Your spouse. <laughs> right? If you think your spouse is what completed you, the first time you don't feel complete, you know who you're blaming? Your spouse. <laughs> right? And now your spouse became your god or your idol. And so I had to, I had to, I went through some pain thinking that, right? At the beginning of Becky and I's marriage, every time I felt lack still, blaming her. Blaming her behavior. What's wrong with her? If she could just act right, if she could just be right, all would be well. And I remember God said, Greg, you know that, that woman that you keep asking me, telling me what's wrong with this woman? He said, that woman is a blessing in your life. And I was like, what? <laughs> Try and tell me that nonsense? <laughs> right? She's I, the problem. <laughs> do you, but full circle, back to my problem was within but then I was looking for a solution that was without, yeah. right? And so the problem was in there, and I was looking outside of in there for the solution, right? And so then Becky starts bearing the blunt of it. And then I realized, man, when God told me, Greg, nobody has the power to uh, affect your emotions negatively. Nobody has the power to steal your peace or your love or your joy. Nobody has that power. So in the day you feel that, stop fixing your gaze on another person 
and start talking with me about what's going on in there. Right? And start talking with me about the life that's in me that is also in you and what that life looks like and how that life is and the substance of that life. And then you'll find what's going on in there being restored and calmed down. Nobody has the power unless you give it to them. And if you give it to them, they become your God, right? That's right. And the way they would have the power is if you're looking to them for satisfaction. Right? If you're looking to them to be the seal of the deal on your wholeness. Validation. That, 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 that will leave you in a frustration cycle. I love what Mick Jagger said. I mean, I can't, what, I can't get no satisfaction? I can't get no satisfaction. Though I try, and I try, and I try. <laughs> Go for, Google it, man, and listen to it. Listen, that's the cry of the Adam man. Right? The Adam man was trying to satisfy the desire he had for life in the garden. What did he do? He ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what he did was he saw deadness in his body. And when he saw deadness in his body, he said, listen, man, I desire to see life in my body. I desire to be clothed with life, not in death. And so he tried to satisfy his desire. And he tried to clothe himself. And every time he tried to satisfy his desire and clothe himself, he found that he was still naked. Still unsatisfied. Still unsatisfied. Right? That's the carnal mind that does this to people. Right? And this is why I, I hate the sin nature thing so badly. Because the, the problem is the carnal mind. Right? And death is what gives birth to the carnal mind. Death is the root of the carnal mind. Right? And so by talking about some mythical sin nature that no one can tell you really what it is or how it works or how you can be free from it, Right? All they tell you is, well, you want to do good, but you don't. And the reason you don't do the good you want to do is because you're just wicked. Try really hard. You're, you're just a worm. Quote, then they quote Paul in the Bible. He's like, well, you know, I try, what I try to do, I can't try to do. Yeah. And then they, I mean, they use that. Yeah. yeah. And See, Paul even said it. That's what they, they The poverty that. of their understanding. But what Paul's describing is the effect the carnal mind had on him. That's what he's describing. He's describing when he live by the death he saw in his body. He's describing the effect it had in his thoughts. And what he's saying is, when I saw the deadness in my body, when I saw the body of death, listen man, it blinded me to the fact that God was with me. It blinded me to the fact that God was the shepherd and bishop of my life. I couldn't see God was there with me to clothe me with the life that I longed for. And all my thoughts were enmity against God. Meaning that God was thinking, I'm gonna clothe him with life. I'm going to be the shepherd and bishop of his life. I'm going to conquer death in his flesh. But because I was beholding the deadness in my body, instead of the promise of God's life, what happened was I lived by the deadness I saw in my flesh. And that deadness told me God ain't there, that God's abandoned you and God's left you as an orphan in the earth. Well, now I sit with the problem because I agree that God's life is good. And so I'm busy desiring God's life, but I'm busy with the mind that tells me God's not with me to serve me with his life. So then I'm trying to give myself the life. Well, there's a problem because in this dying flesh isn't life. Otherwise, it wouldn't be dying. And so the more I put this dying flesh to work to try to give myself life, the more I find I don't have life. And the more frustrated I feel. He's describing the carnal mind. He's describing the effect the carnal mind and death has. That's what he's outlining. That's why he goes on to say, Who shall save me from this body of death? Who shall save me from this body of death? Right? If you don't see God, it's because you see the death in the earth. Well, there's no death in God. And so if your imagination is filled with the death you see in yourself and in the earth and all around you, it'll be a struggle for you to see God. Right? The way you see God is by seeing the life that manifested in Jesus when he came out of the grave in a body free from death. That's how you'll start seeing God. And you'll start seeing God everywhere, right? right? You'll start seeing him all over the place. You'll start seeing him with you. You'll start hearing his voice all the time. And it isn't that his voice wasn't always talking. It's just now you're tuned in to his life. You've tuned in to what he's done. 
And you start seeing them everywhere. That's why Paul would later come and say, whether shipwreck or peril or sword or famine, none of those things can condemn me anymore. None of those things can convince me God isn't here anymore. None of them have the power to take me captive to laboring and toiling anymore. Because I see that God is with me in the person of Jesus, having condemned death in the flesh. So every time I see death, I don't judge myself or God by the death that I see. Rather, I judge myself in God by the life that I see that he manifested in the flesh of the man Jesus. Hallelujah. And you know what you'll always conclude when you judge yourself and you judge God by the life you see that manifested in Jesus? You'll always judge that God is with you. You'll always judge that you have all things. You'll always judge that you're overcoming the death that you see around you. You'll always judge that you're overcoming the tribulation. You'll never judge that the tribulation is overcoming you. You'll never judge that death is overcoming you. You'll never judge that God's far from you. You'll never judge that you're separated from what you need to have life. You'll never judge that anymore. And then you'll be free from condemnation. It's death that condemns people. It's not God. It's God that sets us free from the condemnation that came to our hearts from death. And the way he sets us free from the condemnation is he shows up right in the place where death was telling us that God's left us. And God shows up and is like, here I am. (laughs) And not only does he show up and say, here I am, but he smites the death that's telling you he isn't there. And that's how the voice of the accuser is silenced. Because how can death tell you God isn't there when you see God showed up and smote the death that was telling you he isn't there? It loses its sting. And so when you encounter death, you begin to have eyes to see God with you. And instead of lusting after life through your own strength, which the only reason why you do that is if there's part of you that thinks God isn't there, he can't satisfy what you need. Well, he's demanding something of you. He's demanding you straighten up. Yeah. Yeah. What'll happen is, is when you see the deadness around you, you'll judge through the life that manifested in Jesus that God's there. And you'll judge that he's conquered death and that he's the shepherd and bishop of your soul. And what'll happen is you'll find yourself connecting with him when you encounter deadness instead of connecting with your own strength, right? And you won't try to deliver yourself. You'll connect with the God who hath delivered, who does deliver, who shall deliver, right? You'll connect with that God, and you'll find your, oh, hallelujah, right? Yeah, it like, will restore your soul. I like how you said in one of your recent messages that you know, the church has taken the power out of the cross by removing God, saying God has turned his back on Jesus, you know? Yeah. It's just that there's power. We'll, we'll end up talking about that at some point. But God's like our support group. We don't want to, you ever notice how you don't want to hear advice or you don't want to come to somebody for help unless you think they know yeah. what you've been through or what sure. you've gone through? I'm, I'm intimately acquainted with that coming from an addiction background. People who come from an addiction background, they ain't trying to hear from somebody that, that never, that, that never, yeah, they ain't trying to hear from them. <laughs> the reason is because they don't know, right? So one of the things about Jesus being our high priest is he leads us to God in our time of need. Our time of need is when we're feeling weakness over something in our life. Well, guess what? When we're feeling weakness over something in our life, we don't want to hear from somebody that we think don't know about that. And we ain't coming to talk to somebody that we think don't know about that. And you know how Jesus leads us to God in the midst of our weakness? He comes and shows us that God put on our skin suit, the skin suit that could die. And he tasted the weakness that we feel. He tasted the pressing in of the fear of death. He tasted the swirling around of the confusion. He became intimately acquainted with everything that ails us. And now we can look into the face of God and we don't see a far away God that we think, how can he know what we feel? How can God feel lack? How can he know what it's like to not have what he need? How could he know that feeling at all? Well, we see in Jesus that God was nailed to the cross. And we see in Jesus that God tasted the death that tormented us. And we see in Jesus, boy, he does know. And what happens is, is we start, God becomes our support group. And every time we feel that lack, it's a subconscious thing that goes down. When you see God knows, when you see that he's intimately acquainted, that he's not looking down at you and thinking, well, how come you feel weak? How come you can't just get it right? Stop sinning, stupid. 
The Bible college I went to, that's what the guy used to say. Stop sinning, stupid. You ain't coming to a God that you think is thinking like that when you're in the midst of weakness. You ain't coming to him. You're busy thinking, well, if I can clean myself up, then maybe he'll allow me to stand in the room. But when you see a God who isn't despising you over your weakness, and that the reason he isn't despising you over your weakness is because he never expected you to be able to resist sin. God's the only one who can resist death in the flesh. Why do you think he had to come? So God, once death entered the world, God was never expecting that you could resist the weakness you feel. What he was expecting is that he would come into the earth and he would resist the weakness on behalf of the human race. And in him resisting the weakness on the behalf of the human race, he would demonstrate himself to be their God. And that we would identify with him as our God. And we would identify with him as our champion. And what would happen is, is we'd start looking to him when we felt weakness. Instead of thinking he was looking at us, telling us just to resist. You look to God and how he resisted, and you'll find God in you resisting. That's what will happen. And I use this example in the men's Bible study of Braveheart. Right? You see Braveheart in the movie Braveheart. You see that guy wasn't afraid of death. Right? You got a bunch of other people around him that were afraid of death. The, the, the king of Scotland was afraid. And so he even betrayed Braveheart. So he could have his little plot. And he thought he was saving Scotland. And Braveheart wasn't afraid of death. And they think we're going to make an example out of their champion. And we're going to strap their champion down to a board. And we're going to torture their champion. So they can see their champion squeal like a baby. So they can see their champion cry like a baby. And they can see how scared and weak and feeble their champion is. And they can be filled with the fear. And they can, we can reign over them. And what they do, they strap Braveheart down to the table in the middle of the square. And they start torturing him. And what does he say? Freedom! freedom! You may take my life, but you will never take my freedom! And what did it do? It filled a bunch of people with boldness. And the spirit that was in Braveheart, the spirit that wasn't afraid of death, roused up in all those Scottish people. And even the king that betrayed him was set free from the fear that was in him when he saw Braveheart doing that. And they led a revolt and conquered. Well, it's the same thing. God is our Braveheart. We were all filled with fear. And the thing we were afraid of was death. And so God comes into the earth and he's not afraid of death. And the death that's in the world nails him to a tree and torches him in, the, in our midst. And what do we see him do? Freedom! And he comes out of the grave having conquered the death that we were afraid of. And now the spirit that's in God, the spirit that isn't afraid, is born in us. And we're filled with boldness and confidence. Right? He overcomes our weakness. We don't overcome our weakness. God doesn't expect you to be able to resist death. That's what you ought to be thinking about when you think about resisting sin. Does God think I can resist death? In fact, the author of Hebrews says, you have not. He says, looking unto Jesus for strength, endurance. For you have not resisted sin unto blood. What he's trying to say is, you guys can't actually resist death in the flesh. God's the only one who can. And so don't set your eyes on your ability to resist, but rather set your eyes on God's ability to resist. Set your eyes on his ability to resist death. Right? And what will happen is, is you'll stop despising yourself for weakness. You'll stop thinking God despises you. We need to put the words right. For so long we've used the word sin as some type of uh, identity mark where somehow we're losers, right? So if you're a sinner, you're a loser, right? right. That, that's not what it, what it means. And so when we think of resisting sin, we ought to think about resisting weakness, resisting death. And that will get us to start thinking of it properly. It says the sting of death is sin, right? And what will happen is, is you'll start thinking, well, does God despise me because of the way death affects me? Does God despise me because death makes me feel weak? Does God despise me because this mortal body can feel weak sometimes? And you, you know what you'll come out with? No. In fact, God, when he put on my skin suit, he sweat blood when death pressed in on him. And so he doesn't despise me. He knows. 
And what happens is, is that draws you in to an intimacy with God when you're in the midst of your weakness, which is what you need. That's what you need when you're in the midst of feeling weakness. You're not in need of trying to resist. You're in need of connecting with the God who resists, or who resisted, right? Because there's strength for you in the God that resisted. <laughs> We've got the whole thing so ass backwards. Forgive my language. Bass Ackward. That's how I can get away with it. Yeah. That's how I can get away with it. I was thinking that Jim may be jumping in there with some of his choice words. But that's only in the men's group. Yes, in the men's group there's much more liberty because we're not recording it. Yeah, it's more like sailors on leave. Well, that's two of the ladies. All right, I was going to say, there is no boundaries in our group either. Zero. Yeah, Athanasius is the guy that... You see, Athanasius, if he was here today, he would say to teach that the Father forsook the Son is heresy. Yeah. And it is. And, there's, and it is. And, there's a re, and he would use that language. He wouldn't call it like, well, you know, some people believe angels are more present than other people. There's a distinct reason why he would call it heresy. And it wouldn't even just be a relational thing. Well, God is love, he couldn't do that. That would be true. But the reason he would call it heresy is because he, you'd be saying that Jesus wasn't God. And he spearheaded a movement towards the end of his life where they convened a council called the Nicene Council. And the main doctrine they convened to consider was the idea that Jesus wasn't God. Because there was people teaching that Jesus was a created being. That he wasn't the same substance as the Father. That he had a beginning. And they point to the cross. And so I don't know if we realize, but when we say the Father forsook the Son, we're saying Jesus isn't God. Yeah. That's what we're saying. Which is one of the greatest heresies that could ever be taught. And yet, the, the whole Western church is built... Every Easter, we come in and talk about how the Father forsook the Son. Mm. Every Easter, we come in and t talk about Good Friday. And we paint it in a picture that is heresy. That was heresy to the early church. You ought to be coming in on Good Friday. And there's a number of different things you could talk about. If you want to talk about Good Friday from the perspective of Jesus as the Son of Man, you could talk about it from the perspective of how God was with him. And God was in him, upholding him on the cross. But what I like to talk about on Good Friday is the God that loved us so much that he'd rather take our death into himself than let us die. And you talk about God as your David on the cross. And you talk about how he came with the sword of the Spirit and decapitated the giant of death. Right? And then you start finding people filled with the strength of God. You start seeing, that's God with me. Right? There was a war going on. Death was warring against me. That cross that's there, that cross is there because that's what the death in the world was doing to me. And I was all the time being overcome and filled with shame and fear and condemnation and guilt by the death that I saw and what the death was doing to me. But now I see on the cross that God showed up and he warred against the death that was warring against me. Hallelujah. Right? And I see he dealt a death blow to death. That's why it's Good Friday because that's the place where death died. And who is it that brought death to death? God. God's the only one who can bring death to death. The reason why is because he has a life that can't die. And so a body he prepared for Jesus. So that Jesus could take death into his body. Which Satan thought he was winning. I'm killing God. I'm killing the Son of God. But there's a problem now because inside of that body that could die was a life that could never die. That's why the scripture says it wasn't possible for death to hold him. Why wasn't it possible for death to hold him? Because he is incorruptible life. He reigns through the power of an indestructible life. So if you have an indestructible life, when destruction comes upon you, the thing that dies is the destruction. Mm. And you start talking about Good Friday like that, and you start feeling juiced. Mm. Right? Right. It's like you're coming out of the locker room at halftime for the football game. What? Like, wow! Right? Right. I mean, imagery is powerful, man. The cross is supposed to be some of the most powerful imagery you could imagine. And you're supposed to see God with you conquering death. I mean, you put on the little clip of Braveheart in the locker room at halftime of a football game, right? 
to people that are feeling beat up and despondent. And you let that thing become alive in them. Right? And let them loose. You'll find them juiced to start the second half. And you hope the X's and O's click in because the juice will only carry you for like five minutes. Right? You can get some momentum going. But you're going to have to carry it through. Right? Yeah. Does that make any sense? Good stuff, yeah, for sure. And that's what he's talking about. See, the carnal mind would always tell you you're separated from the love of God. God's heart isn't filled with loving kindness towards you. Look. Look at the death you see. And then you reason from the death you see. And you see the death and you say, yeah, God isn't with me. Right? And so death is what blinded humans. The way God restores the sight is he shows up and conquers the death. Right there in our midst. Right there. So the next time you see death, you're still not going to like it. But you know what you'll see there with you? God. And you'll feel embraced by God. And you'll see what he did to conquer that thing. And your mind and your heart will start being filled with the word of life. And what God did to conquer death in the flesh. And you'll start thinking of a life that overcomes death. And I promise you, you start feeling happy again. You start feeling like no one can feel anything from me. Like Paul would eventually come and say, Nothing can separate me from the love of God. Right? (laughs) That's why he said that. Paul wasn't telling you that's what you should say. He was describing the way the spirit of life worked itself out in him. For the longest time, I would read that and think that's what I'm supposed to feel. And if I didn't feel it, I was I suck. I'm a bad Christian. I need to read more. I need to praise more. I need to do more. I need to serve more. More faith. Right? I need more faith. That's, but Paul was describing what God brought forth in him. Mm. And he lays out how God did it. And if you'll just have your eyes set on what Paul saw, you'll find the same thing being worked out in you. And that's what I see in my life now. Is I actually see what Paul talked about working its way out of me. It, God worked it in me, and it's God who works it out of you, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. 